I certainly think that a lower carb, healthy fat approach is essential for some people, especially, you know, our type two diabetics. But I think we we don't find health in the extremes. And that's the problem with our industry and with Instagram and TikTok and three second reels and where we're getting our information from these days on one hand is obviously extremely powerful in terms of having access to information. But I think it's unfortunately perpetuating this extremism where people who are, you know, well-meaning and trying to develop incredible health and body literacy um, don't yet understand nuance. And I think often because of where we get our information from, it does perpetuate those extremes. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast, the show that helps crack open your heart and inspire a deeper regard for your own well-being and happiness. Proudly brought to you by 28 Essentials, here's your host, the gorgeous Kim Morrison. Welcome to the Self Love Podcast. This week, we have an extraordinary soul. I get so many questions about nutrition, what to eat, what not to eat, how should we live life, how do we show our kids how to eat, what about problems with food, what's in our food. The questions just keep coming, and I thought there's no better person in my tribe to talk about all of these things with her knowledge is the beautiful Steph Lowe. She is a mother, a nutritionist, a yogi, and the founder of The Natural Nutritionist, a hub for celebrating the importance of real food. Someone who specializes in low iron, low thyroid, periods, and perimenopause. Now, this beautiful soul has a passion for spreading a positive message about real food and the incredible effect it has on health, fertility, and longevity. Steph launched The Natural Nutritionist in 2011 and is on a mission to inspire others to make health a priority in their lives. Along with running The Natural Nutritionist, Steph hosts the podcast Health, Happiness and Humankind and is a passionate mentor to many newly graduated nutritionists and integrative nutrition health coaches. Now, if you want to understand food in a simplistic way, if you want to hear the no BS approach with the science and the education, you're going to love today's podcast. I sincerely hope you enjoy following this and please place your comments, feedback and five-star ratings. They are so appreciated, but you can place your comments on my Instagram page, Kim Morrison and the number 28. You can head on over to my Facebook page, Kim Morrison Training, or you can go to thewellnesscouch.com forward slash self-love podcast. I really hope you enjoy today's show. She's a phenomenal soul. Take care. Be kind. Well, I'm sure many of you know this incredible soul. And as you just heard in the intro, one of my favorite nutritionists of all time. She is an absolute superstar. We've had the privilege of speaking on stage together. We absolutely enjoy our traveling time when we've had it. But right now, this human is a mum of two very little children. And it's an absolute honor to have some space and time to welcome you to the Self-Love Podcast, gorgeous Steph Lowe. It's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you sweetheart, you you know that I know that the world is quite different. (laughs) Mm. I used to hear a saying that the world's stuffed, but the food's great. But I think you and I will both agree that sometimes that's not even the case anymore. But before we get into your passion of food and everything that you love around health and wellness, perhaps you could give the listener just a little brief background as to what led you into this realm of work in the first place. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's quite a long story, but it does start back in in my teenage years in the time of, you know, Dolly and Girlfriend magazine. And that's where I used to get my health advice from. So, you know, back then it was all about calorie counting and low fat. And we certainly didn't see a diversity in what women were supposed to look like and what was seen as beautiful. And I was carrying a little bit of puppy fat, nothing excessive, but set myself on a mission, I guess, to try and look like those girls in Dolly and Girlfriend magazine and took a deep dive into calorie counting and low fat and did it very extreme. Like I have memories of, you know, no longer eating the family dinner because all I was having is, you know, salad with low fat salad dressing, um, tuna in spring water, any low fat, you know, or low calorie product that was popular of the time. That's really what I had turned to in an attempt to to lose weight. But it was so drastic that my mum was quite worried, understandably. And she took me to see a local dietitian. This is up in North Queensland where I grew up. And I can still remember the day where I was sitting in the office with my mum and the dietitian thinking to myself, wow, this lady gets to sit here for a job and talk about food. And it really was the seed that was planted all those years ago, like probably over 30 years ago, truly in in hindsight. And whilst I didn't study nutrition for many, many years, I stayed in the health industry through my undergraduate degree in human movement. I worked in um, personal training and exercise physiology and Pilates, but all along I had this big passion for food. And it was certainly uh, what I was seeing in my clients in terms of what they were either missing in terms of their puzzle to achieve their health goals or back then certainly what was really confusing for them with the the mixed messages and the dogma that we've seen over the last five decades. So then I went back to uni to study my postgraduate degree in nutrition in 2009 and the rest is kind of history, but I started the Natural Nutritionist officially in 2011 and I've been on a mission to celebrate the importance of real food and really reshape or help to reshape our industry and the dogma and the myths of the past. And it is my greatest dharma. It is my greatest passion in life. And I know it does sound quite cliche, but I am extremely grateful to call this a job and to be able to help so many people worldwide achieve their health goals with the foundation of real food. It's such an incredible story. Do you mind if I ask you, for anyone listening to this, the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Yeah, it is a good question. And it's something that I've been asked a lot in, you know, my career over the years. But the beginning with the training, like the degree, the tertiary degree is is quite different. Um, Dietitians do a lot more work underneath the obviously the Dietetics Association of Australia and a lot of their placements are around sort of hospital settings and probably a little bit more of that acute care, which for me just wasn't something that I was interested in. I was more about working with people who want to be optimally well. You know, we're striving for optimal health, not just the absence of disease, as I always say. So, you know, whilst there are many similarities in terms of the 
subjects we would study and our, our knowledge. For me, it was more about being able to deliver the message of real food and, and not be governed by the DAA and their requirements on what we're kind of air quotes allowed to say. So that was for me the biggest reason why I wanted to be a nutritionist and not a dietitian. And, you know, we've seen over the years my dietetic, my dietetic colleagues who want to talk about real food or maybe it's low carb or something um, within our industry, you know, they have moved away from being registered by the DAA because they felt like it was too challenging for them to speak their truth because they were really bound by those regulations. And there's stories like, you know, Tim Noakes and his journey and Mickey Willardon and people that have been really challenged by um, that side of our industry. So for me, it was really important not to be constrained by that and to be able to spread that message of real food. Well, you know, a lot of people in this day and age, Steph, you and I both know this, Many people think they're eating a healthy diet. They think it's real food. But the reality is food is so far-fetched. I mean, we're even talking lab meats now. We're talking this vegan movement, which mm. is no disrespect to the vegans, but there seems to be a whole thing around, more so around animal welfare. What's your humble opinion then, knowing that you've gone from a place of really being mindful of the low-fat, low-carb kind of revolution growing up, now to realising that all foods play a part? Do you believe in the vegan movement? Is it vegetarian, pescatarian? Is it paleo, keto? Is it macrobiotic? Like what is the best way to eat? <laughs> well, I don't actually think that a label is necessary. You know, I'm I'm the first, you know, I did a lot of work in, in the paleo space when it was, you know, in its sort of heyday per se. I certainly think that a lower carb, healthy fat approach is essential for some people, especially, you know, our type two diabetics. But I think we we don't find health in the extremes and that's the problem with our industry and with Instagram and TikTok and three-second reels and where we're getting our information from these days on one hand is obviously extremely powerful in terms of having access to information but I think it's unfortunately perpetuating this extremism where people who are you know well-meaning and trying to develop incredible health and body literacy um, don't yet understand nuance and I think often because of where we get our information from it does perpetuate those extremes and I'm the first to say that I don't believe that we find health in our extremes and I think that if you're trying to dogmatically stick to a label um, that usually that isn't a long-term or sustainable approach. Yeah, I can imagine. But some people, it's more around their beliefs and their values than it is actually around health. How do you support someone like a young woman? And I say this only because I've seen it happen a number of times. Teenage girls make a stance, not just girls, this is just a generalization, but they make a stance, they're going vegan or like what you did in your time as a teenager going low fat. How do you coach a young woman into understanding the importance of a realm of nutrients to make her body into the best version it can possibly be? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. And I think it is about coaching and, and, and showing her, uh, uh, you know, where that nutrient dense is found the importance of specific nutrients which are more challenging to achieve on a vegan diet. But do you know what I find to be the most powerful is pathology. So it certainly wasn't something that I was taught in my degree. I'm very self-trained and, and do 
you know, professional development in this quite truthfully every week because I'm so passionate about our blood chemistry. And for a lot of people who come to me that, you know, might intentionally, you know, maybe their intention is to come to me to learn how to optimize that vegan diet or that vegetarian diet. If they see their pathology is, I guess, suffering, or if they, you know, can't approach that diet without supplementation, often it's them who change their minds to really decide what's right for their health and for their reproductive health and their fertility outcomes. And I find the pathology so, so powerful in that regard. So that's why I'm really passionate about optimizing our health through that lens as well for many reasons, but definitely in your specific example. Well, I think also too, it's not until you see the truth of something like a blood test result or the pathology of what's presented to you that you actually understand it. Many people don't even realize what a carbohydrate, fat, macronutrients, micronutrients, what the proteins do in our body. Mm. If you were to give an overall view of what these nutrients actually do, what's the importance of each one of those major groups? Yeah, well, there's so many examples, but I think for like the macronutrients, if we talk about our carbohydrates, our proteins and our fats, the overarching thing that I start with for people is, is blood sugar control because I think that is huge as a starting point. So then we would, of course, really want to make sure that um, she or he is having adequate protein and adequate healthy fats for their blood sugar control, which obviously controls their, their energy, their satiety, their cognitive function their ongoing food choices, cravings, and so on. So that's what completely changes um, someone's day-to-day experience when they're not just filling up on the carbohydrates of our Western food pyramid or vegan diets that we call starchitarians because they're just living on carbohydrates because they haven't been taught how to do it properly. Um, But also I obviously these days, I work with a lot of women around their menstrual cycle, their reproductive health, their fertility outcomes, supporting them during perimenopause and beyond. And most women don't know that their hormones are made from proteins and fats. (laughs) And as soon as they hear that, you can see the penny drop, that they realize that actually real food is as powerful as we talk about because without adequate energy, which is obviously calories, without adequate macronutrients, you're already going to see hormonal dysfunctions which we're obviously seeing now as a product of the low-fat era and birth control, which obviously collided. But then, of course, nutrient density covers a lot of the micronutrients, which we can talk about for hormones as well. So I've been talking about real food since 2009, and I still am so passionate about it because I see it every day in clinic. I see how powerful it can be if we eat enough, if we get the balance of micronutrients. And then of course, if we get specific into those micronutrients and that's all relative to to our goal or our presenting symptoms. It's just such a complex and yet quite simple strategy. Mm, You you mentioned earlier the Mediterranean diet. That came up when I had my smart DNA testing done. For me personally, that was considered the best diet for me. And it's the diet if there's, I don't even particularly like the word diet, but it's the food groups or the food choices I make that make me feel my best. Could you explain the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, absolutely. I think it is a really good, like, 
if we're going to give anything a label, yeah, we would look for something like that because by nature it's very anti-inflammatory. And I'll talk about the specific foods in a moment. But if we look around us in a Western culture, what we see is lifestyle diseases that are a result of largely our lifestyle, very much so our nutrition choices. And we know that inflammation is the root cause of a lot of those issues, whether it's heart disease or diabetes or cancer or what have you. So naturally our goal then should be to counter inflammation, which we do with an anti-inflammatory diet. And the Mediterranean is a beautiful example because it emphasizes fruits and vegetables, um, healthy fats, legumes, for some people, you know, they do, they are suited towards um, some whole food grains, although I don't think that's compulsory. Um, lots of oily fish, you know, really, you know, a good volume of eggs, so on and so forth. So all of those beautiful whole foods that are one, they have the lowest degree of human interference. So therefore they have the highest degree of nutrient density. And that should be our aim, right? To eat foods that are in their whole food state, that aren't these, um, pardon the French, chemical shitstorms, like with the example that you gave around that lab meat, those vegan meats. I mean, they are probably the biggest disaster of the recent years because they are this shitstorm of chemicals. And people don't know that because they've been sucked into the climate change, environmental methane from cows is is the kind of... Um, nemesis which is obviously a big fallacy that we can unpack but again like if you just bring it down to is that food found in nature no it's not it can't be good for us if it's made in a lab with this you know greenwashing behind it to masquerade as being healthy well i think that's the scary part is that this this box this thing called a television social media <laughs> All these platforms mm. are brainwashing, hypnotizing us mm. into believing that we're eating healthy foods. There's another thing that I have around this is, first of all, I've got so many questions, but when it comes to getting your pathology back, and yes. let's say you are showing you know, signs of really low and things like vitamin D, maybe B, maybe iron, all of these things, is, is there an, an important time then where whilst we can appreciate I think it was Hippocrates, let medicine be thy food, let food be thy medicine. Mm. But is there a time when we do need supplementation or we do need extra help from perhaps things that have been made in a laboratory? Well, it's a good question. I mean, there's supplements and there's supplements as well, right? So let's make sure that we do define that. But it, to, to answer the first part of the question, I'm not anti-supplement. I mean, I look at I look at tens of blood test results every week. And the way I would approach it is, you know, supplements are what they sound. They should be supplementary to the diet. So I, I don't necessarily believe in starting there. I think we have to work on the foundations of the proverbial house with looking at our nutrition and our lifestyle. But certainly in the short term, while we're working on that and while we're addressing overt deficiencies, I think supplements absolutely have their place. And then it comes back to, you know, okay, for how long? Well, for, like for me, it's about educating my client as to why and and to for them to understand for how long and then what is the long-term solution because, you know, our, our industry can be just as guilty as the pharmaceutical industry with a pill for an ill. And, you know, you can imagine the number of people that I've met that have carted in um, their 
their supplement graveyard of 65 supplements. They don't know what for, why, you know, they've stopped taking it because it obviously doesn't drive compliance when there's no education and when it's impractical to actually facilitate. But it is really about the education. And then it comes down to the type of supplement. You know, I'm not really big on synthetic supplements. If I can avoid it, I'll try and always use something in a, in a more of a whole food form, which is what my clients come to me for. Because, you know, I obviously have quite an echo chamber, but the people that follow me want to take a natural approach to health. So they might have seen another practitioner and they're on synthetic supplements, synthetic iron or synthetic prenatals, and they do realize that there is another way so I can be their guide. So that's what I really enjoy doing as part of the education. But the other consideration, truthfully, is what's going on environmentally because the climate is obviously changing no matter what your actual stance is on that kind of controversy. But the real issue for me is what's happening with our soils because our soils are so deplete that we aren't getting those micronutrients and minerals from our food like we once did. So, of course, I wish that we could eat you know, all of our dark leafy greens and nuts and seeds and cacaos and get enough magnesium from our diet. But we just can't these days with what's going on environmentally. So something like a magnesium supplement can be life-changing for all sorts of clients, but especially my my reproductive clients or my um, women with menstrual cycle issues or PMS or PMDD. Like I think there is absolutely a place for some supplements based on where we are environmentally as well. Let's talk a little bit more about the soil. There's a movement at the moment in our world. I don't know if the actual general public is hearing this, <laughs> but certainly in our world, yeah. soil is where it really is starting, mm-hmm. where it really begins. And regenerative farming has become a buzzword in our industries. But more importantly, there's actually some incredible science behind it as well. And of course, understanding the soil. If I go down, you know, one of my favorite things to do is to grow my own chilies, herbs capsicum, zucchinis. I've just got a little garden out the back of my place. You go down to say Bunnings and get your soil. I saw a thing on social media just recently where they actually planted seeds in different bags of soil. And in fact, most of the ones you get from Bunnings with respect, they didn't grow the lettuces the way that you would expect them to. So how do we as the layperson know what's the best soil or how do we prepare even for a backyard or a pot plant garden? Yeah, I think that's a really good point because, yeah, where where do you get your, even your seeds from these days? <laughs> like if they've been grown somewhere, right, with questionable practices and, and God knows what they're spraying on it. You know, that's a big worry of mine as well because I think a lot of people are wanting to grow their own vegetables or fruits and vegetables or herbs, like you said, which is wonderful, but we've got to start with the right raw material. So that's where I think we can... Um, learn from our local farmers markets or our local organic farms I think it really does we have to go back to more of a grassroots movement because we've seen what's happening well we've seen what's happened environmentally both with vegetables and fruit and herbs but also with our livestock industry as well of course so I think a grassroots movement is key and like I said you know learning from our local community and our local farmers is really what we have to turn to these days and 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 really stop spending our money with the big industry because there are health consequences of that and environmental consequences long term. 
Well, this is where we don't have to be massive campaigners out there with pickets, um, <laughs> absolutely storming into troop-like behaviour into Parliament. Actually, everyday choices and decisions where we choose to spend that dollar is one of the most powerful ways that we can create a stance or create a movement away from these big conglomerates. But I'm, I'm fascinated to know this. When you think about you know, us all trying to eat well and do the best that we can and make the best choices and stay away from sprays and pesticides and herbicides and glyphosate and all these laden foods. I mean, I've just got one question for you. Are we doomed? (laughs) Uh, You've got me on a good day. Like, I feel like our generation are going to be the ones that make the biggest difference. But I think for a lot of people, um, yeah, when you mention like that, all those things that we have to be concerned about, it can be really overwhelming to try and, you know, you know, climb that mountain in the day versus it just versus just looking at small sustainable changes that you can make in the home. You know, like there's little things that everyone can do that make a difference, like stopping buying your fruit and vegetables from a big supermarket and taking your family down to the farmer's market, you know, like getting your own um seeds from that farmer's market and growing your own herbs your own chili in your garden like we have to start with those little steps or it'll feel like too big a problem to solve but then of course you know I've got clients who are farmers and they they talk about the challenges with converting their farm to a regenerative farm like we hear from our friend Charlie Arnott and others that are doing such incredible education in that space but it's not a quick fix it's a bigger bigger story than just oh yeah make your farm regenerative and let's save the world like these people have um a lifestyle to support and it costs a lot of money to change a farm so I think we need to appreciate that it's unfortunately not a quick fix but we have to start small to reverse um our mistakes of the past Let's talk about mistakes of the past. The <laughs> 1950s was a revolution to help women feel like they could get out of the kitchen, mm. stop having to be a slave in the kitchen, in the microwave. In came fast foods and more um, prepackaged foods, etc. As much as women may have felt in the 50s that might have given them freedom, it's actually cost us exponentially in our health. We now see things. I never had a person at school. I don't recall. I'm in my mid-50s, but I don't recall anyone at school uh, with ADD, ADHD. Mm-hmm. I don't recall any really overweight, really morbid the obese or children struggling with their weight. I just don't recall it. So when we look back on the 50s and this freedom movement, uh, we interviewed Dr. Natasha Campbell McBride a number of years ago, and she talked about the fact that one of the greatest things we could do is to get back in the kitchen. Now, some women might see that as a, a I don't know, a detrimental. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) But in all honesty, how do you feel about this? And what about these people out there, these women who are busy, they're they're mums, they've got lots of work, they're corporates, whatever it is, and they just hate cooking. Like how do we turn this around? I think there are lots of options. But just to say that like if you're thinking about how or where to start in terms of your health journey, I do think that one of the biggest key pillars is to cook your own food because then you control the ingredients, right, which we can't be said for those packaged foods that we just get from the the mainstream supermarket. So cooking your food is key, but so too is the mantra, 
cook once, eat twice, or cook once, eat many times, right? Because I am that person that you mentioned. I've got a very successful business, multiple staff. Um, uh, My husband and I have just bought four chiropractic practices in Tasmania. I've got a two and a four-year-old, you know, and my story is a lot of my client's story. And sometimes they have, you know, even more on their plate and more children and a husband who works away and so on and so forth. It's not about um, who's doing it harder, but it is acknowledging that there are challenges with time. But I do think it's so important that we prioritize that. But if that means that you cook most of your food on Monday night or on the weekend, then that's how you have to do it because it is more affordable to do it that way. I mean, there are other options, of course, but I think it is really important that we make it an appointment with ourselves, just like we might schedule in our Pilates class or we schedule in our therapist appointment. Like our meal planning or our food shopping or our food preparation is probably the more, a more important appointment, arguably, because we have to eat three or more times a day. And it, it can't be something that we consider in hindsight because then it will be too stressful and expensive and we'll be eating at eight o'clock at night and it will just feel like it's too hard versus thinking about the the plan for the week and applying that foresight so it can be, be integrated into the week and into the busy schedules that we all live. There are ready-made options that are great these days. Like we don't just have lean cuisine to choose from like we once did. Um, but it depends on someone's budget. You know, it's kind of time or money, isn't it? It's time or money and you've got to make that call as to what's right for you. Exactly. And I think when health is your driver or your greatest value or you see it as your greatest asset, then in many ways, time and money don't even become an issue because it's actually now become a priority. And that's what I say to anyone around self-care, self-love, taking care of yourselves and your families. It's never about time and money. It is about what's a priority to you, what's the most important. And the only example I can give on that is if all of a sudden you're confronted with a life-threatening illness and the only way to save you or a loved one is to go to Mexico to do some form of treatment, we find the time and money to do that. So I just want to call us all out on this, that it's never really about time and money. It comes down to what's really important to you. So, And I say that with with very, um, you know, a strong conviction that I think there's ways of making it work. You'll cook once, eat many times. Um, Things like going to the farmer's markets, you know, like I don't personally eat red meat, but my family do. And when I buy the lamb or the steaks or the uh, nitrate-free bacon or the organic chicken or whatever it is that I buy for my family and for myself, I just feel so... um, I don't know, I just feel like I've got a little halo above my head, Mm. not only for the choices I've made, but also because I really try to work out how can I make this meal last bigger. I've got young, you know, young adult children when they come home on weekends. I spend a lot of money on food, a lot. But here's the key. The times change and we get educated in different ways. For example, when I was doing my um, study around health and wellness, becoming a PT, I mean, we were taught ballistic stretching. We were taught low (laughs) fat. We were told, you know, that these things like Olivio spreads were way better than a saturated fat like butter. Mm. So I converted my whole family and said to everybody, this is before I had children, but my dad, my mom, everyone, I just was like, you've got to have Olivio. It's low fat so good. And then, of course, a couple of years later, I started to realize what was made of that, what was in it, that it wasn't really a real food. And the way that they processed it didn't turn whatever was real in there probably into more of a chemical shitstorm, as you said. 
So then when I went back to them and said, oh, no, no, we've got to go back to butter. Well, their doubt in me as someone who knew what they were talking about grew tenfold. And they've always, my dad in particular, held it against me. Oh, yeah, but remember you said butter was bad for a while there and now you're telling us to eat butter. So how can we believe you? You yourself has seen the absolute shift in even understanding things like the gut microbiome and how much we know, but how much we still probably don't know. How do you support people with these changes and even yourself with learning more? Is it that you're just upfront, open and honest, and this is the latest research, this is where I'm at? Mm. Do you say this is how you said before, you spend days training yourself constantly. Things are always changing, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, when you were talking about the 1950s before and, um, uh, you, you know, your example was more about the kitchen. In my work, I often think about around that time with birth control, like think about how that was sold for us. It was women's lib. It was freedom. It was, there was, you know, street parades and the biggest, like the biggest campaign about it. And nobody thought about the long-term consequences. And now we're seeing women who can't fall pregnant, 30-year-olds, with osteopenia, huge hormonal issues from what was celebrated for all those decades. We have to stop thinking about the short term and we have to think about the long-term consequences. And I think it's a good thing if you change your mind. I mean, there have been leaders in our field and Tim Noakes is one that comes to mind. There are other people who have, you know, quite literally ripped out chapters from their previous books because the research has changed. That's not anything to feel guilty about. It would be worse to dig your heels in and try and, you know, keep proving that you were right because of your ego or what have you. We, we do have, um, we are allowed to change our minds. And I don't think that should be seen as a negative thing. Like to, to talk to your father's example, like he, if it was me, I'd be celebrating that you were okay with saying that you were wrong and showing him the new research. I think that's what we have to do. We have to stay up to date. That's so, so important for our health. And it is our health insurance for our long term. Thank you so much. Just lifted a weight off my shoulders. <laughs> no, serious. Um, I really am grateful because in this day and age, let's go back. My grandmother, when she was in her 50s, sadly lost her husband through war injuries. I was one when he died. Now, she was told in that era by her doctor to start up smoking as a form of stress release. <laughs> So let's just talk about the medical and the scientific world as well. You know, whenever someone says to me, my doctor said this, I'm always also mindful of what my doctor told my grandmother, but I'm also mindful that there are things like thalidomide that happened. Mm -hmm. So the same approach is also applied to our experts, isn't it? Where they too can accept there's fault or problems or better research. Is that your experience nowadays that people are more open to realizing the medical mistakes or medical misadventures? Yeah, I think we can't not because we do have that example of smoking and this week actually when I posted about the birth control saga there was a study that came out recently that showed a 130 percent greater risk of depression in the first two years of the oral contraceptive use and our very dear friend Cindy O'Meara wrote on my post the, um, the pill this generation's smoking you know, it is. There are constant examples that we can turn to, like like cigarettes, like thalidomide, now like the oral contraceptive pill, 
very soon, you know, it'll be SSRIs and so on and so forth. Like there are so many examples where we were wrong that I think what that has done and the pandemic is probably the has been the cherry on top for a lot of people in that we are now questioning what is true. Our generation don't believe that our GP is Jesus, that what they say is true. We're often questioning, is there another way, which I absolutely love. Like I never want to be a doctor basher, but a general practitioner has general knowledge. They don't specialise in certain areas, so they aren't your person if you've got a specialised symptom or if you're looking for optimal health. They aren't who you see. They're incredible for acute care. They're wonderful for general knowledge and, you know, if you need antibiotics or whatever's going on in your world, but they aren't they aren't specialised. So that's why myself and others have specialised in specific areas of health because that's what we're needing these days and it's what people are asking for. They want to know the truth. They want to know the latest research and they want to know how to do it without a Band-Aid pharmaceutical suggestion. Mm. It's not a solution. It's a Band-Aid. And we're asking for better than that, which is amazing to see. The medical system here in Australia, a doctor is paid, and this is just what I've heard, I don't know if it's truth, they're paid by the government, they're supported underneath the government with Medicare and all of these sort of um, amazing healthcare opportunities that we as the public get. They're paid anywhere up to, I I imagine, somewhere around that $300,000 a year is a figure that was thrown around. Again, I'm not sure if it's true. But if they don't comply with what the government then stands for, then that is also questioning. I interviewed beautiful um, Alex Stewart, and she is a she has a degree in political science. And her biggest thing was the greatest mistake we ever made to move away from an aristocratic lifestyle to a more democratic lifestyle is the minute corporate money got involved in government and politics, Mm. we lost our rights in many ways, doctors included. And the pandemic, if that's the word, was one of those classic examples. At the very beginning, you'll laugh at this, Steph, at the very beginning when it all happened, my husband still had to keep traveling. And so we went to the doctor and we got ivermectin and we got it prescribed and we had it and hydrochloric hydroxychloroquine we also got as a backup Danny travels to India and a lot of these third world countries and it was brilliant he came back we got it went in for another six month supply and was now told by a doctor it was no longer available or a prescription or a prescribed medication I've now noticed on the television everyone's pumping the flu vaccine someone's just died from the flu a young girl get your kids it's free vaccination again this is not banning or knocking or bashing the whole vaccine, you know, protocols and things like that. But there is a little bit of something weird going on in the background, even for a layperson like me. What's your thoughts around that? And is it still around education and who you follow and what you choose to believe? Yeah, well, to say that with with GPs, that they're bound by what is called the standard of care, right? So if you go in with X, they have to offer you Y. So if you mention the word depression, they have to offer you a a Zoloft or an SSRI. They can also offer you a care plan for psychology, thank goodness, right? So if you go in with a reproductive issue, they have to offer you the pill and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of people don't know that. So they don't know why they keep getting the same response to their query, which is, again, why we have to consider going elsewhere if the pharmaceutical solution isn't right for us. But the doctors have to follow the standard of care or they will be audited and they will have their licence to practice questioned or taken away like we've seen many times before. So it's it's not about blaming the doctors. 
although they can choose to practice differently, it is a it is largely a function of how the system is. You know, it's it's those very short appointments with no time to talk about nutrition and lifestyle and supplements. Um, it's not being allowed to say yes to certain pathology tests, or you'll be seen to over refer for testing and then you'll be audited and so on and so forth there is so much red tape it would be one of the hardest jobs to have these days like I certainly couldn't be a GP I know that for a fact but with your example from Danny um yeah the TGA would have changed the rules so then if the doctor was to reissue that prescription they would have been seriously in trouble so they couldn't do it even if they believed it to be effective and so again that comes back to the biggest system and the influence of the pharmaceutical industry, which, you know, whenever I say this, people think I'm being some kind of conspiracy theorist. So I've heard it all before, let me tell you. But it's true. There are a lot of rules that have to be followed. And then you have to think about the vested interest and what's going on. I mean, COVID was a really big example of what we talk about as being the terrain theory because so many of us are fine. And arguably a big part of that is because we had a good terrain. Our health was optimal. And then sadly, those that didn't have a good terrain were either getting, you know, very unwell, suffering from, you know, long COVID or what have you, or there was that the, the, the mortalities that we saw as well. But that didn't mean that everyone had the same risk. So that shouldn't have meant that the strategy was the same for everyone. And it's the same with the flu. The strategy shouldn't be the same for everyone because we've all got different risks. You and I would maybe feel different if we were a 90-year-old with certain comorbidities, but we're not going to be that person because of our primary value. So I'm not going to give my children a flu shot because they're not at risk. And that's the decision that I will make as a parent and everyone will make their own decision and they should do by assessing their own risks. But the TV needs to go off because it will always feel like it's the worst case scenario. Like literally yesterday in clinic, I had a conversation with, a client of mine who's a mother, she's got a one-year-old and she saw that news article, which I didn't see because I don't watch the news, but apparently there was a news article about two young children dying of the flu. And that was used as the latest fear-mongering campaign to get more parents to take their kids along to the, um, to the, you know, to the flu vaccine. But I asked her, I said, did you know anything about the health of those children? Like, unfortunately, it's very likely they were very unwell. So, of course, they were susceptible. Does that mean that your child has the same risk? Like we have to critically think these days because the news is always going to present that worst case scenario and it doesn't apply to those of us with a great terrain. Are we becoming a society of non-thinkers, non-questioners, compliers and thinking that what they tell us on the box is for real? Well, that's the thing. People think it's the news and I'm like, well, it's some of the news, but it's not the news. And so... Yeah, I think that there's too many people that actually believe that, that is the, the truth and the only truth. They, they haven't been taught to question. And in my echo chamber, it's not like that because, you know, my clients, I had significant, um, you know, audience growth throughout the pandemic because of what I was saying. So I can be confident that my audience are the critical thinkers. That's how they found me, right, because of what I was saying during that time. But, I, you know, that's a, that's a minority. But I think that um, it's it's increasing exponentially in our current times and it's about time. <laughs> mm, I reckon, I reckon. You know, one of the other things that kind of freaks me out is sponsorship. 
um, in sporting realms where you mm. get KFC or mm. McDonald's. When my husband was playing cricket for New Zealand, Rothmans and Benson and Hedges and DB Draft Breweries were the biggest sponsors. So cigarettes and alcohol were the sponsors. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you see some of our international teams with KFC or McDonald's on them, knowing that young people are looking up to these people? Or in New Zealand, the All Blacks were sponsored by you know sanitarium or wheat bix and it was always like how many wheat bix can you eat at like an all black so how do we yeah. also and neutral grain makes you into an iron man so how do we navigate that realm when our kids are so subjected to this yeah you know i think it's complicated because i can't speak to you know contracts and what they've agreed to drink on camera or anything like that you know I think there'd be so many unique examples but what about when um, Ronaldo was refusing to have the can of coca-cola in front of him in the press conference and that became you know this huge kind of um, I don't know news piece and and significantly shared on social media and we need more people like him to reject foods or, or um, food-like products such as Coca-Cola. And he wanted to have a bottle of water in front of him during the press conference. And the the cricket players could be doing that. I mean, we did see that with um, some of the AFL players with regards to Gatorade. And we just need more people to be the example for those that are a little bit, um, I guess, less educated or more likely to fall for that greenwashing. It's not going to go away. These companies have gazillions of dollars to spend and they'll, they'll keep spending it. But I think there needs to be more leaders that, that, that do have that, the audience to stand up and speak their truth rather than just take the money. Um, and I, then I think it does come down to education and, and self-advocacy so that you can learn to see through that BS yourself. That's what's most important educating yourself and then it obviously the flow on effect to your family and the next generation is what we're seeing already now and I think it's an exciting time I think that you know my girls their generation um that's going to be night and day to when you know when I was a teenager and and what that looks like for women's health especially but you know men's health as well like it is an exciting time um but we have a long way to go and it does actually absolutely start with self-education and health advocacy. Well, I think also too, the ones that have the biggest impact are the biggest names, because if you're just new into a international team or something you're kind of like at the bottom of the ladder and they can replace you easily but when you become a Ronaldo or Djokovic like his stance through the whole COVID thing was just Mm -hmm. incredible and I just love it when his book came out Serve to Win many years ago and my husband didn't understand what the problem was with gluten and loved his gluten and stuff Mm -hmm. and gluten is in beer and he has the and he had these tummy upsets and all sorts of things and it was thanks to his book Serve to Win that Danny read and went oh my god because he states in there how much better he played, how much better he stayed and focused his recovery, his fitness, his performance, everything came back to what he was fueling his body with. And I guess we've heard it before. If you've got a Formula One engine, you aren't going to put 91 petrol into it, right? (laughs) So I think if people could just realize we're all athletes, we are all incredible athletes, and we are, for want of a better word, a Formula One athlete at that. So I want to thank you for bringing that up. And again, it's it's it may not happen all overnight, but it is slowly happening, and that's something we can be grateful for. Something else that I've seen um, happening a lot is a lot of conversation now around fish. 
So fish now is considered bad. Um, This is a generalized statement because of the amount of mercury. So whilst we're talking about soil for our plants and vegetables Mm. and all of those things, what are you seeing now in the waterways around fish? And what is this whole thing around mercury? Should we be avoiding fish? Mm, yeah and that's it's it is another example where you know so going back to what we were saying before about a mediterranean diet like high in oily fish but where do we get that fish in australia that's not farmed you know and so mercury is one part of the conversation absolutely and that depends on on the type of fish which i'll cover but a lot of it comes back to to practices and and that is asking questions about how that fish is sourced and essentially supplied because unfortunately in Australia when it comes to a lot of the oily fishes it, it's predominantly farmed and then we'd have to argue well how healthy are you know the the antibiotics and the the hormones and the practices being used to essentially improve the bottom line and that's unfortunately the reality a lot of my clients you know used to eat a lot of salmon for example but either can't source it where they live or yeah, just find that too um, cost prohib- prohibitive to buy only wild caught fish. But you know, mercury builds up in fish over time, and all fish contain some some mercury. But the higher amount depends on like certainly the age of the fish, um, the environment in which it lives, and then what it eats. So because bigger fish have longer lifespans. Um, and they're eating smaller, younger fish, they tend to have higher levels of mercury. So things like um, swordfish and flake are certainly going to be higher in mercury. And then, you know, tuna in a can is always one that comes up as well because you'd have to question the age of canned food too and what the the actual um, canning process does as well. But I think if you, if, you eat, if you can access either you catch it yourself or, <clears throat> pardon me, wild-caught fish with a sustainable um um and you're eating smaller fish a couple of times a week there shouldn't be a concern but there is of course a lot of nuances there and and a lot to navigate in terms of how we source our fish and the industry in general in australia um has a lot to answer for and it could it's got a long way to go in terms of improving it to be more sustainable and and more healthy at the end of the day it's just another big can of worms so to speak yeah, um, but it's, I, it's hard to navigate, isn't it? It can be overwhelming. Yeah. Mm. Well, and also too, I think it comes back to, in my humble opinion, I think we overeat. Generally speaking, I've been guilty of it mm. myself. I eat way too much and too often. And really, um, I watched a series on television. Cindy and I actually got really addicted to it called Alone. And I don't know if you've seen it, but they, mm. these these contestants were placed in the middle of nowhere, mm. um, kilometres from each other with just I think they could take 10 items in with them and they were there for as long as they could survive. And the last one standing won, I think, $250,000. Well, two of them, the last two, and I won't spoil it for everybody, but it's a great show to watch. They went in, they put on a lot of weight and it's almost going back to our hunter-gatherer days where we'd put on weight in summer and almost go into more of a ketogenic sort of space over the winter when food was more sparse. Mm -hmm. So they went in 20 kilos heavier than they normally are. They they purposely put on weight. Yes. Mm. Those were the last two standing, which I found fascinating because one of them in particular didn't eat for the first eight days. They had to set up shelter. They had to kill everything. They had to. They also had to trap the animals in case it was the protected species. So, look, it's just a fascinating thing about survival. But also, my, and my point around this is getting back to where food comes from. 
I, I don't know about you, Steph, but I'm not sure. I, I'm not a farm girl, so I'm not sure I could kill a cow. I'm not sure I could personally kill a chicken. I just, I don't know. But then if you put me into a situation where I'm absolutely starving and the only thing in front of me is a wallaby, I can't honestly say whether or not I would or I wouldn't because I've never been put into that situation. Mm -hmm. What is your thoughts then around educating our young people? I mean, my greatest thing I loved at school was when we planted a bean seed and we watched the beans grow. I don't know if you remember it, but I just, we got so excited. We also loved seeing chickens grow at school and all of these sorts of things. Most kids don't even realize and maybe even the parents don't even realize where the food originally comes from or the sacrifice of that animal. When we look at indigenous cultures and their gratitude and their absolute respect for when they kill a beast or they Mm. get food, there's such reverence around the cycle of life. What's your thoughts around that? And how can we bring more of that into our Western society and culture? And we absolutely have to. So, for example, earlier when we were talking about the cost, um, I just quickly Googled how much a chest freezer costs because I couldn't remember. (laughs) But they cost around $300 to $400. So we have a chest freezer in our garage, which I bought when I was setting up postpartum for my first child. But it is now full with a a half a cow. So we have um, a couple that we're friends with that have a friend who has his own farm and he ethically um, raises them and slaughters them and we buy half a cow each and it lasts us probably in our family five months or something of the sorts, right? And yes, there is an investment initially, but you then don't buy your proteins for months and you know where it's come from. You know it's pasture-raised, grass-fed, hormone-free, ethically slaughtered. You you know where it came from um, and you consume it you know, through that lens. And my my children know that. And it's a conversation that we have in our family. And I think that is the way of the future, right? Because you can see labels at Coles saying grass-fed, but the labeling loopholes mean that that animal is essentially grain-fed right up until the last one to two days, and it can still be called grass-fed. So, you know, it's quite nuanced, right? It's not just as straightforward as saying just eat grass-fed meat because people will shop at Coles and think they're making the right decision but they've essentially been tricked by the greenwashing again so that's why when you actually go straight to the farm yourself you get around all of that greenwashing and you can feel very strong in your decision to consume meat as ethically as possible and Mm. I think you know there's so many examples of farms that, that that already do that for us or yeah like I said finding a, a family or friends to do it together and then with you know we've we've bought a little thousand square block in in Launceston these days and I can tell you right now the house is a little bit cold for me but the reason why I bought it is because of the garden because we have raspberry bushes and blueberry bushes we have pumpkins and zucchinis my children have been planting tomatoes and kale for next season there's pear trees, there's pajoas, there's apple trees. Like it is just not a farm, but it's almost like a little bit of a city farm. And my favourite thing to do is to take my girls out into the garden and collect our fruit and vegetables for the day. And I just think that's so powerful, yet you don't need to have space to do it. Like you can do it in a, a planter or on the windowsill if you're short on space. But I think it is so powerful that the children of our generation see that because 
like you, I didn't. I saw frozen vegetables heated in the microwave and served up on my dinner plate. I might have had, you know, mangoes and avocados in the backyard, but I don't recall a dialogue about, you know, about where food comes from. And that's something that I'm really powerful, passionate about with with my children. And I think that we all can make small steps in that direction. It, It doesn't mean that you have to have a farm. You can definitely start somewhere and make sure that's a big part of the conversation at the family dinner table. So beautiful for our children to see that, right? And we we have a we say a prayer or a grace before we eat, just oh. to give thanks not only to the chefs, mm. but also to well, the food that we're so so lucky to have in plentiful form. You mentioned the word Fijoa. I'm just in love. I'm on a plane. I can't wait. That's such a Kiwi food. I just <laughs> love Fijoas. Oh, oh my, my gosh, my four year old Grace is obsessed with them like they're quite a unique taste right for for a little one you'd consider them to be quite tart and bitter she'll eat like 10 a day if we let oh yeah it's amazing Oh, no, they are cross between a banana, a guava, and an apple, I think, mm. or something like that, but they're just divine. Mm. I know we've, we could talk heaps more, and you mm. know I'm in absolute awe and love with you. Um, just one final thing around food, um, you know, labels. <laughs> Once again, the greenwashing. Mm. I remember seeing, and I rang the company, it said, no added MSG. And when I turned it over, it had the number 621 in there. So I rang the company and they said, oh, no, when it comes, I can't remember the exact process, Mm. but when they got it, it had it in there. They just didn't add any more to it. Mm -hmm. And yet on the front, Mm -hmm. it's got no added MSG. Mm -hmm. So to the general Mm -hmm. person, you'd go, great, there's no MSG. So understanding numbers, colors, Mm -hmm. even any of that, perhaps one of the best things, well, actually, I'd love to hear your advice. Do we just eat any food that's got a number or a color or an ingredient, perhaps that we don't know what it is? What's your stance around that? Yeah, well, it is a good point because that's Greenwashing 101, right, where they say no added MSG. So what they've said is actually true (laughs) to a degree, but if you interpreted that as no MSG, then, of course, you've fallen for the trick. And the other example that comes to mind when you say that, and I will answer your question, but you know, a little while ago, so a couple of years ago, there was that big seed oil mo- or anti-seed oil movement that's still going, thank goodness. But you started to see companies put on the front in extra virgin olive oil. And then you turn it over. And you're like, of course, yeah, it's in extra virgin olive oil, but that's about 1%. And there's still 99% canola oil in there, right? So you don't read the front of the packet because they lie to you. You turn it over and you read the NIP, the Nutrition Informational Panel, and you know that the first ingredient is the most predominant ingredient, so they're listed in order of abundance, and it is important to, to understand what's in there. And, yeah, if you eat real food, there isn't or there aren't any numbers in there, so the problem goes away. Now, there might be some foods that you eat that are in a packet, but you can still avoid numbers, can't you? Because these days with the real food movement, there are real food or there is real food in a packet so that would potentially be the exception to the rule but uh, the numbers are a big concern to me like my children don't really eat sugar but I have a a challenge with my beautiful mother-in-law who's very very um, amazing and helpful and we get along really well but she's a feeder and no matter what we leave in her pantry or what I take over my children end up eating like tiny teddies or something of the sorts when she's there. And I just have to, I don't know, go for a meditation and try and focus on what they do the majority of the time, not what they do every once in a while. But for some reason yesterday, 
my girls were at her place and they ate Smarties. And my children don't eat artificial colours ever because I just think that that's a disaster, circling back to what you were talking about, ADHD and what have you. But you should have seen Grace last night. It was like she had taken um, speed. She was just talking a million miles an hour. She was so hyperactive. I was actually quite nervous if she was going to be able to go to bed because it was, you know, 6 o'clock by the time I'd finished work. And it was just actually quite frightening to see her behaviour. Thankfully, she did go to sleep and it was all fine, but I haven't stopped thinking how I'm going to approach the Smarties conversation with my mother-in-law because I just think it's so bad for our children, for our developing bodies, our developing brains. It's that important that we know what we're feeding our family and, you know, taking some time to educate yourself around the numbers or avoiding them altogether has to be a part of the solution because ADHD hasn't just come out of nowhere, right? It's surely greater diagnosis but absolutely to do with our food of the last you know 50 years mm. well I remember the same with my beautiful mum and Tim Tams was her little treat for the kids mm. and of course they loved them mm. I started saying to them how do you feel yeah after you've eaten that and they became they didn't stop saying no to a Tim Tam but as they got older they realized more and more that they didn't feel great now I can't control them as they're now adults but I think as young adults uh, young children it's incredibly challenging but I think what you came back to what are we doing the majority of the time I think that's really where we can give ourselves a little bit of a break for all of us some of us might have a glass of wine sometimes some people might have a dessert um, that's laden with all sorts of calories and sugar and all sorts of things. I get that. So really it comes back to if, if, we're, if we're on the same page here, do the best that you can with everything you've got, educate yourself, stay in the loop, appreciate there are uh, agendas behind much of the food industry and be mindful of that. Is there anything else you'd add to that? No, I think that's a good summary, but you just you have to focus on what you do the majority of the time, not once every once in a while, because I don't want anyone to fall into the trap that they can only be healthy if they're in the, the extremes. That doesn't mean that you need to eat sugar or canola or anything that doesn't serve you, but I, I just think that trying to take a, a balanced view is important, especially because... Um, it's like the forbidden fruit, you know, with my children. My husband said to me the other day, oh, you're, you're so different to what I thought you'd be. I really thought that, like, if it was a few years ago, you would be so stressed about sugar. And I, I, I sort of, you know, reflected on that recently and I was like, well, I, I do, it does stress me out, but I don't want my children to develop some kind of food disorder because I've made something out to be the forbidden fruit like I think it's really hard to find the balance and I certainly don't achieve that every day in, in my house, but I don't like the idea of like good or bad food. If it is educating around how they feel, like you mentioned, that's powerful. We try and talk about sometimes foods. I'm still working on my four-year-old. She's only four. You know, we have a conversation at home and she's like, yep, yep, one treat when I go to granny's, I'm going to choose one. But if granny presents her with tiny teddies, ice cream and Smarties, She's, not, she's got no hope. She's going to forget that conversation, right? She's only four, but I've got to keep trying. And then I can't choose to sweat the small stuff and lie awake at night thinking about it. I just have to focus on how beautiful they eat the vast majority of, time, of the time and keep the education going. And that's what we have to do. 
my only alternative is for her to not go to granny's and I don't think that's the answer. <laughs> I, I get it, I get it. Mm. I think I recall Dr Libby Weaver saying something like there is no junk food. It's not food. There's mm. food mm. or junk. There's no food to add to that word. So mm. it's, a, it's a challenging one, isn't it? And especially yeah. our beautiful grandmas that just want the kids to have little treats because they probably see us as Attila the Huns. And <laughs> and oh, probably absolutely. Think- I'm sure that's how I'm viewed by my home my own family, even <laughs> though I'm far more balanced than I've ever been. But I think when you when you know what you know, you can't unknow that, right? And that's exactly. where I sit and I don't ever apologise for that. But I definitely think with our children, with, you know, the pressure of social media and, um, you know, what we look like and that whole sort of patriarchy for women, I do think we have to find a nice balance so that we don't create a problem for the future. Exactly. You know, all of the stuff that you're talking about, putting nutrients into our body, what we put onto our skin, how we create the environment is actually setting us up for the best we can possibly have. And to me, these are all acts of self-love. They, mm. It is truly looking after oneself. It's been mindful. It's been questionable. It's been curious. It's been educated. It's been in the possibility of all things and being open to And like you said so eloquently, trying not to be at the extreme of anything. If that's the case, and this is all a part of teaching ourselves to love ourselves, what would be your definition of self-love? Put yourself first. I know it sounds pretty straightforward, but I work with mostly women who um, sacrifice themselves for somebody else and it always leads to a health consequence. And I think as mothers, we need to role model. You know, every time I walk out the door for a run or a walk or to go to yoga, my children are like, don't go, don't go. And I have to reframe it and say, mummy's doing exercise. It's really important for her mental health. And I'll come back a much happier mummy and I'll see you in 45 minutes and role model that. And I'll never forget when my mum came down to visit, she made a comment like, oh, gee, you exercise a lot. And it was quite um, critical. She didn't mean it that way. It was just a contrast to what her world was like when she had young children. She did not start exercising until I was 21 and had left home. And that was the previous way to mother, I think, to put yourself last and to try to pour from an empty cup, which we know is obviously a disaster waiting to happen. Whereas for me, it's all about putting myself first and prioritising my health and my mental health. So that is role modelling that to my children and that they can see that I'm, I'm looking after myself so I can be the best version of myself for my family and for my clients and, of course, for everyone else that I interact with on a day-to-day basis. It's not selfish. It's an investment in yourself and it's the most important decision that you'll ever make. So powerful, my beautiful soul. I just want to come to a closing that something that I've learned from you and Cindy and Libby Mm -hmm. and all these people is that beautiful slow revolution. Eat seasonal, local, organic and whole as much as you can. And I just want to thank you for being such a beacon of light and someone who speaks their truth, but also has the validity, the science, the knowledge, the education, and most importantly, the experience around this. Keep doing what you're doing, my dear friend. We love you wholeheartedly. If people wanted to follow you or even wanted to book with you or have some sort of training or insights from you, how how can they find you? Thank you so much. Yeah, my online home is thenaturalnutritionist.com.au. Um, certainly on all the socials under the natural nutritionist. So I'd love to, yeah, I'd love for everyone to come and um 
come and say hi. And yeah, consults can all be found either on the the bio link in Instagram or or from my website. So please do reach out if you'd like to connect or if you want um, some one-on-one support with myself or the team at The Natural Nutritionist. So we don't have to come to Launceston to pick Fijoas to see you. We can do it online. <laughs> well, I actually only work virtually at the moment. I mentioned yeah. that my husband and I have bought um, Tamar Chiropractic, so I will be doing some um, some local consults in the near future. But since the pandemic and um, I had my second in 2021, I've just been working virtually, but it obviously allows me to have clients worldwide and I'm not limited by um, distance with the work that I do. So it's all run um, via Zoom at this point in time. So yes, anyone can um, can connect with me that way for, for consultations. Wow, it's so powerful. And, and listeners, I cannot recommend following this woman enough. You will learn and be educated so beautifully on her Instagram page. Love her photos. Love what you share, sweet Steph. Uh, final message and perhaps include your favorite quote for the beautiful self-love podcast listener. <laughs> well, my my favorite quote is one probably used quite a lot, but I do often think about the quote comparison is the thief of joy because we live in this world where we're overly connected to people and we obviously have a huge focus on a highlight reel which I think creates a lot of problems for people especially if they're you know starting out or if they feel like they've got a long way to go with their health journey but you've just got to start where you are and acknowledge that everyone's trying to do the best but at the end of the day it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing it's about doing what's best for you your health your family's health and the flow and effect to your community. So you have to keep that that focus and just work on putting yourself first. Um, and then you'll see that trickle effect. And it's so powerful to see how influential you can be on others when you, you know, are true to yourself and your values. So so important to live that way. You are a blessing in our world. Beautiful Steph Lowe, thank you so much for being on the Self-Love Podcast. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Thanks for listening to the Self Love Podcast. Be sure to write a review and share the love with your friends and family. And head over and visit Kim and her team at 28.com. That's the word 20 and the number 8.com. Take good care. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.